And I couldn't explain it to myself or to others. But looking at that, I eventually came to realize that my work with my pupils, with the children that I had in my classroom, that was my work for peace. Welcome to episode 15 of the Western Friend Podcast, a joint production of Western Friend and the Soul Force Ones. On this very special episode, we bring you an interview with Julie Harlow, a founding member of Friends House Moscow. She discusses her intercultural experiences abroad, what her pupils mean to her, and the importance of seeing and hearing others where, if you can see their faces, you can imagine being friends. This interview was recorded with a live studio audience via Zoom, and a question and answer segment follows the interview. If you are interested in attending a live recording of the Western Friend podcast, you can find more information at westernfriend.org. And now, for today's episode. Julie, really excited to talk to you today. And my first question is, really, what's your connection to Russia, the Moscow house? When, why, how? Um, it was the early 1980s. And I loved my pupils here in the public schools of Northern California. And they were fearful of Russians invading, of Soviets bombing us, of dying in a nuclear war, of suffering through a nuclear winter. And way open for me to address their fears. In 1984, I went to the Soviet Union to bring back photos and experiences I could share with classrooms and communities to break stereotypes and to demonstrate that we could become friends. I made presentations in schools and to community groups and churches. I organized a tour for a sister city project and then five years of Quaker tours. The last one was in 1991. We landed in Moscow three days after the failed coup. We experienced the Soviet Union collapsing as we traveled from republic to republic, only to find that each now declared itself an independent nation. Small grassroots groups that we met asked that we Quakers be a resource for them as they struggled to organize to address some of the many problems that were left from the Soviet period. This formed the basis of my vision for a Quaker center in Moscow. There were many visions that came together, many hearts and hands and heads that were needed before we officially started our service January 1 of 1996. And I have been on the international board of Friends House Moscow since then. That's it in a nutshell. The, the one thing that's interesting is the word pupils, right? Because there's your students. And then what you were doing, as I understand, was helping children see our shared humanity. Can you can you speak to that in terms of the idea that if they see pictures of perhaps other children in Russia, they can be friends, they can imagine how we mm -hmm. share this oneness, if you will? I felt an urgent personal responsibility to do something about these fears and did not see how to do that 
until I saw a display of photographs of people from the Soviet Union set up by a woman named Jean Knudsen Hoffman. And the caption under the pictures read, if you can see their faces, you can imagine being friends. And then I knew that was the answer. The only pictures that we had of the Soviet Union were St. Basil's, a czar to Lenin, Stalin, and an old woman in black carrying buckets of water during the siege of Leningrad and missiles lined up in red square. Those are not images that bring to life the idea of friendship. And I looked for pictures and simply couldn't find any. And then this tour presented itself and it was the answer. Go and take the pictures. And then I, I brought them back and I put them into a slideshow. You know, the old fashioned slide with the carousel. And um, I think I made presentations to about 150,000 students in Northern California during the four or five years that I did them. When the Soviet Union collapsed, that was kind of the end of tours to the Soviet Union and uh, programs about life in the Soviet Union because there was no more Soviet Union. And then the vision of a center there that would help to address the problems left over from the Soviet period came to me and came to others. And as we got together, we figured out how to make that happen. And when and where did the connection to your spiritual faith, your Quaker community, how, how did that play a part in all this? I had not been attending a Quaker meeting for very long at that time, a few years. And I don't remember anybody talking about leadings. But I had that sense of urgent personal responsibility. I was driven to take action. And now I call that a leading. Someday I'm going to write a Pendle Hill pamphlet called The Leading in the Rearview Mirror. Because from where I am now, I can look back and I can see every step that it took to get to where I am now in terms of activism in this area and in terms of my spiritual growth. But I never saw what was coming ahead. The support of my monthly meeting was critical in being able to put that foot out in unknown territory and take that step when I did not see exactly where it was going. I knew I was supposed to do it. It was a growth of faith. It was a development in my ability to listen for spirit. It was a maturing of my distinguishing the difference between ego and personal desire or the drawing of spirit in a particular direction. The 
work that I have done, the things that I have done to make all of this happen have all been steps of faith. I don't consider myself a political activist. Yeah. I have been blessed with this sense of being called and the support from my meeting and the, the holding of spirit to be able to do some amazing things. That reminds me of the quote that I think you have on your signature, maybe it was in the article, Baklav Havel, am I pronouncing that correctly? Can you, can you talk about that? Baslav, yeah. Can you talk about that quote yeah. as it relates to hope and, and doing something, even when perhaps you don't have the vision of how it's going to turn out? Yes. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well. It is the certainty that something is worth certainty. doing no matter how it turns out. Certainty. It's that certainty that it is worth doing. He says it so well, I don't know what else to say about it. <laughs> there have been so many times when I knew I was supposed to do something and I was afraid in very many ways. The second board meeting, uh, which I clerked, left me quite hurt and really afraid to go back to the next meeting six months later. I didn't feel that I was trusted. I didn't feel that I was heard as a person who was following spirit. And I developed laryngitis. So when I went to the meeting, I couldn't say anything, which sort of protected me from being criticized for what I said. And I knew I was supposed to be there, but I began to question whether it was spirit or stubbornness just raw ego, refusing to give up. And then we had a meeting for worship, and I felt strong call to stand up and speak. And what I talked about was the fact that when I first began attending the Quaker meeting, everybody seemed to be so involved in waging peace. They were writing letters. They were vigiling on corners. They were doing all kinds of actions. And I couldn't do those things. I suffered from chronic clinical depression. And those things would just have left me immobilized. And I couldn't explain it to myself or to others. But looking at that, I eventually came to realize that my work with my pupils, with the children that I had in my classroom, that was my work for peace. I said that with a very shaking bit of a voice that I managed to pull up. And afterwards, the woman we often refer to as the first Russian Quaker, Tatyana Pavlova, came up to me and hugged me and said, it is so important that you come here. 
And I didn't know what to make of that. And then a friend from the Moscow meeting said, Tatiana has not participated in any of our peace demonstrations. And she feels very torn about that and feels that she is letting the meeting down. So without knowing it, at least part of the reason that I was there was to share that experience with that woman who was wrestling in the same way that I was earlier. This idea of listening, right? Listening to that still small voice of God within us, this leaning, the kind of this notion that God is speaking to you, perhaps through you to, to take action in the way that you have. Um, I, I, I think of that notion of, of prayer. Can you speak to how perhaps your calling was influenced or led by this notion of, of prayer? Was it? And if so, how and why? My wrestling with my inability to participate in the peace and anti-war activities of the friends that I knew, that wrestling made me come to terms with the fact that my peace work was with the children in my classroom. That's what I was doing for peace. I was teaching them to communicate with each other in ways that showed kindness and generosity. And because I had to wrestle with an inactivity in one area, it made me more awake and alert to possibilities of growing that other edge and looking for ways that I could enrich what I was already doing. It was my love of those children and my recognition of their fears that prompted me to take the next step, which was going to the Soviet Union. When I first saw the advertisement for this tour, I looked at it and it was such a handwriting on the wall, burning bush moment. I remember that the advertisement was on the bottom corner of page three of the newsletter from Educators for Social Responsibility. And it said, tour the Soviet Union. And I thought, people go there? And then it said, a tour for teachers. And I thought, I'm a teacher. To bring back photos. That's what I need. I need pictures and experiences to share with their classrooms and communities to break stereotypes. Sign up here, Julie Harlow. It, it, was, it was just written for me. It was exactly what I didn't know I needed, but it was the answer. And I think that I went with such a joy of fulfilling this desire I had to address 
the fears of the children at home, that I expressed that joy in the Soviet Union. And so I broke stereotypes there of the ugly Americans who talk about the evil empire. I, I could give lots of examples, but I remember the first time I was on a, I don't remember now, it was a, I think it was a subway in Moscow. And the women on the subway stared at me with such contempt and loathing. It was a, a quick look and a turn away and another quick look and a turn away. And I mean, in the United States, we would interpret that as hostility. And I went back to my hotel room and I cried. I'm here on a peace tour to make friends and they all hate me. What, what am I to make of this? And I decided that I would make fun of it. If they wanted to look at me like I was weird, I would just point out how weird I was. So the next time I was on the train, expecting Russians never smile. That was my conclusion from the first trip. When they looked at me like that, they were staring at my blouse. I said, oh, yes, this blouse is from California. A little bit of Russian I had. Ya is California. Ya uchitlnitsa. I'm a school teacher. That was all it took. And the women came over and engaged in a one-way conversation with me about my earrings or the band in my hair or the, the fabric of my blouse, the shoes I was wearing, the bag I was carrying. And then they invited me home. Well, I couldn't go to all the homes. But I discovered that Russians never smile first. It was culturally just so rude to invade someone else's personal space by talking to them when you didn't know them. There's also that issue of being protective of your privacy and not knowing who you might be talking to and what tales they might tell someplace that would get you in trouble. And so learning about the culture, I learned to have a really big sense of humor in all of the situations and engage with whatever pantomime it, it took to get a message across, to break tension in a situation. It's about loving people and, and enjoying them and finding a way to step into their space. I, I'm going to tell one other short story. If you went into a Soviet department store, you would see all of the things that are absolutely essential, but not the luxury items. Those just didn't exist. And a bathroom scales that many Americans take for granted is one of the things that they just didn't have in their homes for the most part. So a doctor or nurse would be in a park with one of those scales that you stand on and it has that arm where it has a weight, you tap it across and tap it across until you get to the weight. So I decided to have my weight done 
in the park and I stood on the scales. Now at the time I was five foot six and a half and weighed barely 120 pounds and really looked like I was maybe a hundred pounds. So I stood there on the scale and this woman built like a refrigerator freezer, whacked the, the, the weight down to the end of the scale and then began tapping it toward the center. And she tapped and tapped and tapped and tapped and tapped. And then she looked down to see if maybe I had one foot on the ground. And she tapped and tapped and tapped and tapped and tapped. And then she checked my feet again to make sure they were both on the scale. And she kept tapping and tapping and tapping and tapping, tapping and tapping and tapping and tapping. So finally she got down to my weight. And then without saying a word, she indicated that I was to stay where I was, just stay there. I nodded that I would do that. And she left. And a few minutes later, she came back with an ice cream for me. It was to make me big and strong. Like her. How can you not love <laughs> someone who spends 10 Copics on an ice cream when I only gave her five to have my weight taken? There's so many instances of interactions with people that equipped me to come back and tell with honesty and joy and authenticity the experiences that I had with real people, the way they treated me, the way they accepted me. So there was an aspect of praying for the direction to take waiting for the right words for the situation, but also taking a chance, stepping out a bit beyond my comfort zone in many cases and making it comfortable because I knew I was in the right place. I knew I was in the place I was supposed to be. Generally for 36 years, <laughs> I've, I've known I was in the place I was supposed to be. And, and that includes the amazing gift of being able to enjoy five months in a car, staying in a different house almost every night, doing presentations about Friends House Moscow and five, six, seven different cities a week and loving every minute of it. Well, there was that one incident where I hit a javelina outside of Tucson. That was not so pleasant. But the rest of it, really, it's where I was supposed to be. You talked a little bit about prayer. And in your article, you, you write that with regards to the Friends House in Moscow, we share a general understanding of the efficacy of prayer and a faith in it. Many spiritual traditions hold that if many people pray together, this change can happen. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of prayer, particularly in community? I believe that at the core of Quakerism is the understanding that if we still the monkey mind, we can hear God speaking to us. And the next step is to 
cooperate with the movement of spirit. For me, that involves visualizing what you believe is the best outcome in a situation. And when the international, the daily international meeting for worship for peace gathers, we are not asking a Santa Claus in the sky to fix something, but we are visualizing what peace would feel like. We are holding an image. And if the Wright brothers had never had an image of an airplane, they wouldn't have been able to build it. What you can manifest has to first be imagined. And I believe that that imaging, that holding the possibility, that expecting, expecting an outcome that is the right one in this situation. Julie, in the case of going to mm -hmm. the Soviet Union, did you have a vision? Because I heard before that you were just kind of called. You had this leaning. You didn't necessarily, and correct me if I'm wrong, have necessarily a vision of what the outcome is going to be. But it was the right thing to do. You were called to do it. Does the vision develop as you go? Or did you? That, that first trip? That first trip, my vision was not of what would happen there. My vision is of, was of what would happen when I came home. My vision was that I would come home equipped to talk to students and communities and church groups and whoever would listen about the reality of the humanity of those people in that foreign area that we knew nothing about. That was a clear image. And I went there to make that happen. I went there to make that vision a reality. I also did my homework. I worked with a tutor to learn a bit of the Russian language and know the alphabet so I could sound things out. I asked everyone when I knew if they knew anybody in the Soviet Union. Now, that question got some strange looks from a few people, except Quakers. They said, oh, yes, I met a lawyer from St. Petersburg. Or, oh, I know a dentist in such and such a country. Or, oh, I've got a pen pal in Kiev. Quakers were not at all surprised that I was going. Oh, I was there in 57. Oh, I went on 72. And so there was a rich field to mine of other people's experiences there, people that they had met. And so I had something of a vision of meeting friendly people. That's why I was so blown away when they stared at me like I was an evil bug the first time I went on the subway. The vision changed as I moved. And as I adapted to what was going on, but the vision that was very clear to me is why I was there. And I was there to break stereotypes of the Americans and bring home pictures and experiences that would break stereotypes of the people of the Soviet Union. 
And I believe that I was very successful in both of those cases. One of the most touching responses I got from a student who was in the audience of an elementary school where I gave a presentation about life in the Soviet Union. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, my name is Misha. I knew immediately that he was part of the Russian emigre population, West Sacramento. He said, my name is Misha. Thank you for saying something nice about my country. And it still nearly brings me to tears to think about the children who were raised by emigres who have nothing good to say about the country they left. That's why they left it. They, they got out because it was not a, a good place to be. And here's a child who knows that his history and ancestry are from a country that his parents seem to hate, and so does everybody else around him. I believe that I was true to what I was led to do, what I set out to do, what it was my vision to do. And of course, the vision changed in terms of how to present the information, what exactly I would do at the school, how I would convey the, the culture and the artistry and things that children could identify with, like toys, the Matryoshka doll, commemorative stamps. And I packaged that in such a way that it was easy for teachers. And they, they loved me coming in because I gave them a lesson plan for two or three days. So the vision is something that you hold on to and you, I shape, I let it shape my actions, but I don't let it limit them. Because as you take that one step that feels clear at that moment, something else is going to come up. And so you revise and adapt. And I did a lot of that. I remember giving a presentation to a group in, I think it was El Paso, but I'm not certain. And one man in the audience kept asking me questions about security and safety and precautions that I should take. And he finally, and he didn't like any of my answers. And he finally sort of blurted it out. You've got to be afraid of the KGB. And then I, I got what he was, what he was trying to get at. And I said, Oh, I've decided not to do that. And then he stopped asking questions. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't hearing the fear in his questions. And so I wasn't addressing it. And when I said, oh, I've decided not to be afraid, it kind of took the wind out of his sails. And it wasn't anything that I had planned on saying. It wasn't part of my presentation. But it was certainly the right thing to say in that moment. Personally, when I pray, it's really about listening. It's not about asking. It's certainly not about telling. Some of it is gratitude. 
but mostly it's trying to be empty enough to listen, to hear what guidance spirit has for me in that moment. I've often felt that the antithesis of fear is faith. And I'm wondering in the present day war in Ukraine, how you, the friend's house in Moscow has maintained or has continued to maintain the waging of peace amidst death, destruction, violence. Friend's House Moscow is an office that is kind of a management service for the international board, which makes the decisions about what programs we support. And I find the staff to be deeply centered in faith, deeply committed to the notion that their country can be better and that they have a part in helping it in that direction. They believe deeply that Quakers, Quakerism has something to offer that people are asking for, they are wanting, they are receptive to, and they simply continue with that work. The projects that we support have that same faith. I don't know if they use the word faith, but you see it in their actions. The programs they set up are reflections of a faith that they can make a difference. And for many of them, it's a faith that the state can learn from what they are doing and make improvements. And it's happened. The office does not, the staff do not participate in protests, that would be a way to end their work. That would be a way to end their influence. But the projects that we work with continue their work. One of the groups that I have found most inspiring are the AVP facilitators in Ukraine. Alternatives to Violence Project in the United States is often centered around prison work. But in Ukraine, they do community workshops. And in 2014, when Putin invaded Crimea, shortly thereafter, the AVP Ukraine group began doing workshops, bringing together ethnic Ukrainians and ethnic Russians. These people would line up on opposite sides of the room with true hostility toward the others. And at the end of a weekend workshop, they were hugging each other and crying together. The AVP process is one that you, you just can't shorten the amount of good that it can do, the changes that it can bring to people. And AVP Ukraine developed a program to bring these two ethnic groups together who have deep and 
long-lasting hostilities and made a difference, really made a difference. For me, one of the very heartbreaking parts of this invasion of Russia and Ukraine was that that work had to stop. And it's needed more now than ever, but it's impossible. We are supporting other projects. Most of them are working with Ukrainian refugees. And one of the programs that is similar to the one in Ukraine is the one in Estonia. In the early days of the Soviet Union, all of the republics were russified. The local leaders in government and industry and education were all pulled out and Russians put in their place. Russian military moved in. Russian language was forced. And there was a deep hostility and deep resentment about that on the part of the local population. But there was also the heavy hand of the Soviet Union that said, this is a good thing. And in each capital city, they would set up an enormous statue to commemorate the deep friendship between the Russian people and the whoever it was that they were invading. When the Soviet Union dissolved, the lid blew off that pressure cooker and that those generations of resentment boiled to the surface. In Estonia, you have a situation of local resident ethnic Russians whose families were probably there for two, three generations or more, but they are deeply resented by the Estonians who have a cultural historical remembering of the Russians taking their place. And then you bring in Ukrainian refugees. So you've got a kind of a triple mixture there. The Ukrainians and the Estonians both have deep animosities toward the Russians. And so the AVP Estonia group was developing a program to try to head off what could be violence between those groups. And they began with not bringing the three groups together or even two of them, but just working with the Russians by themselves in terms of understanding where the resentments might be and working with the Estonians by themselves and working with the Ukrainians by themselves, but making the effort to bring them to a place where perhaps they could be brought together. That's one of the programs that we are supporting. There's another program in, in Estonia that is a program for children of refugees. There is a program, and I'm forgetting now whether it's um, Estonia or Warsaw, that is aimed specifically at the children and the parents of children who have disabilities that are coming out of Ukraine and need special attention and care, and have special needs. The Warsaw Friends Meeting is also working to establish a refugee center for Ukrainians to provide hygiene care, 
medical care, um, help them with finding housing. So we're supporting those kinds of programs that are meeting a real need today. While we continue with the programs in Russia that work with orphans and uh, young adults who are institutionalized and translating Quaker materials into the Russian language. I don't know that this is a, a way to address the war, but it is a way that we continue moving and continue to bring help to those organizations that need a bit of extra support. Thank you, Julie. We have a little bit of time. want to open it up now to those who are with us today, um, those in the audience, to ask any questions that you may have directly of Julie. Julie, do you feel any possibility of uh, retaliation against your office in Moscow for holding a meeting that uh, is seeking peace? No. You don't feel like you're viewed adversarial in any way? No. For, for one thing, there's a structural separation from what Friends House Moscow Support Association does and what the staff in the office do. And the Daily International Meeting for Worship is sponsored by the Support Association, which is the American fundraising arm. And so it's not really in any way connected with the office. And what the office does and the projects and programs that we support in Russia are not only completely legal, but they are often done in cooperation with a state agency or state office. The refugee center in Moscow that we have supported for many years just got a 10-year lease from the city. So we don't work in conflict with the authorities. Sometimes it's completely separate from what they're doing, but often it is in cooperation with them in one way or another. The Quaker meeting in Moscow is also separate from the office. The office is not a religious institution. It's a small business. They are a management service. Now, when we started in 96, the staff were employees of the International Board. And when it became possible, it, it took until, I think it was 2005. Soviet Union collapsed in 91. And in 2005, they finally figured out what to do with entity that wasn't governmental and wasn't trying to make a profit. They just didn't get it. So they finally decided that it was a non-governmental agency and developed paperwork for us to fill out. So we filled out the paperwork and we were recognized as an NGO, non-governmental organization. 
Then in 2012, Putin got suspicious that any organization, non-governmental organization in Russia, that was getting money from outside of Russia, like from the United States, well, they must be working for the CIA. And so they began to scrutinize these groups. And the staff very wisely came to the board and said, it's really not safe for us to be an NGO anymore. And the two of them had decided that they would form a business partnership. And they laid down the registration as an NGO that NGO just disappeared and they registered as a small business called Friends House. <laughs> and so they are a translation and editing and publishing business and a management service. And what they do for their clients is not a reflection of their beliefs. If they translate Quaker materials, it's because somebody's hiring them to do it. So what they're doing is completely within the law. There's, there's no conflict there. Thank you. Thank you for your question. I will tell you a story that one time the police did come to our door. This was back in the fairly early days of friend's house when we couldn't afford an office. So we had an apartment and actually it was not legal to have a business run out of an apartment, but that's not what got us into trouble. We were on, I believe it was the ninth floor of an apartment building. And one day the police came and knocked on the door and they said, your neighbors report that you are having illegal religious services. We have to investigate. So they came in and they looked over the place thoroughly and they could not find an icon. They couldn't find a censor, robes, vestments. They, they found one Bible, they confiscated it and they left. A few weeks later, they came back knocked on the door, your neighbors say that you are holding illegal religious services. We have to investigate. They still couldn't find any icons or censors or incense or, you know, anything. They found another Bible and they confiscated it. A few weeks later, they came back, knocked on the door. Your neighbors say you are using the elevator too much. That was actually the complaint. Now, it, it points out two things. One is that neighbors don't talk to each other in a building. You, you just, that's a scary thing. That's not a safe thing to do. The elevator serves everybody up and down. And if it breaks, you have to walk up all those stairs. There's no other elevator that you can go to. And the fact was that we were having religious services there. Every Sunday, 20 to 35 friends would 
come and get in that elevator and go up to the apartment. But the elevators are tiny, so you can only go like maybe two people at a time. So the elevator would go up and down and up and down and up and down until it had made 15 trips. And then an hour and a half later, it would go down and up and down and up and down and up until all those people left. We were using the elevator too much. That was a righteous judgment. So as I recall, Patricia Cockerell was there. And when she discovered what the real problem was, she baked cookies and she took them to the neighbors on the top, on the upper floors and explained that when they had friends visiting, they would ask them to walk up as many flights of stairs as they could. And we would try not to use the elevator so much. And in fact, that instruction was given to the friends of the meeting. And they did walk up as many flights as they could, and that solved the problem. This is also an example, though, of the fear that was created when the Orthodox Church reacted to the influx of Western religions and the Duma passed laws to restrict the actions of religious organizations. And what it meant in real life was, if you had a gripe against a neighbor, you don't go to them and tell them you're using the elevator too much. You go to the police and you report them for a religious activity because they will investigate that. One of the sad things that I see in Russia today is that in some ways, they are going back to that fear of each other. The fact that it is against the law to use the word war in referring to Ukraine. You are very careful to whom you share your views and how you say it. And you don't say anything in public. That had changed somewhat during the Glasnost and Perestroika period of Gorbachev, and it's it feels like it's going back to that, that darker time. In some ways, I feel we might be returning to a darker time here in this country. And, and it's so important for us to stay with the light, to find ways to bridge differences, and to look for and share instances of positive actions because there's so much emphasis on the negative. Yeah, we need to see. We need to love each other for that which we share in common rather than hate each other for that which we do not. Can you get in trouble in Moscow saying such a thing? Depends on who you say it to and how loudly you say it. What um, Sergei has shared, uh, he is our, one of our staff people in Moscow, is that people are very careful about what they say and to whom. And you do not hear politics discussed on the street. You're not going to walk by a conversation in a coffee shop and hear people talking about uh, 
something that Putin did or soldiers being deployed or anything like that on the on the streets in a public area you might talk about what you're shopping for what your kids are doing personal and non-controversial and only when you are in your apartment closed doors with someone you truly trust would you have a conversation about something more substantive how much do you feel that the meeting there, the Quaker meeting there, is able to, you know, talk about a vision of a better world, a different world? I'm really not sure. Quite a few years ago, the Moscow meeting decided that some of them were going to worship midweek and some of them were going to worship on the weekend. And a year or two ago, I asked Sergei quite pointedly, what was the impetus for this decision to meet in two small groups? Why, why did they decide to do that? And he looked very thoughtful, like he was calculating the best way to say it. And then he said, there was a conflict. Well. I knew that. I was wondering what the conflict was. Was it theological, political, a matter of time availability, time for transit? But there was a conflict. And that is just such a Russian answer to a question. It doesn't commit you to anything. It doesn't betray anyone's confidence. It doesn't give you enough information to do any damage. It also doesn't answer the question, but that was all I was going to get. And I suspect that's all I will ever get. I do know that there was a member of the meeting who was quite nationalistic. And I don't know how much that extended into worship, but I suspect that, that there were views on the political side of things that they didn't find a way to reconcile. So my impression is that meeting for worship messages are quite safe. When the group meets for meeting for worship, they, they gather in a cheerful and uh, very conversational space. And chat with each other and talk and sometimes we'll read a passage from one of the books that's been translated into Russian, um, the Britain Yearly Meetings Faith and Practice sections of it are often used as a starter for conversations about spiritual matters. And the conversation goes around the circle and Sometimes there's a pause in it, and I can I don't I don't know what they're saying because I don't speak enough Russian to understand the conversation. I just get the tone of it, and there'll be a pause that seems to indicate there was a disagreement, and then there'll be some laughter, and somebody breaks the silence, and then they go on to something different. <laughs> you just don't quite go there if you disagree. 
And eventually, when they feel that everyone is there that is probably going to come that day, which is most likely 30 to 45 minutes after what they said was the beginning time, they settle into silence. And one or two people might speak during that silence. And then they kind of ease out of it at the other end and get a little bit more chatty. And then, and then it's tea and cookies time. And it's, it's a lovely couple of hours to be together. And it, it flows. But I suspect that there's a lot that's not said. Because even in the group of Quakers, it doesn't feel entirely safe. And it may not be that they fear someone is going to turn them into the police. But just it's going to rock the, the calmness of the group. It's going to shake the center somewhat. So we, we keep it agreeable. I think that's not terribly unlike some Quaker meetings in the United States. I was trying to think that's of my friend Merrily. Yeah. My friend Merrily has said we speak truth to power, but not to each other. <laughs> I'm so grateful. I, I loved I loved all the pictures you put in my mind here. Yeah, thank you, Julie. Yeah, thank you for it's really been fun. Yeah, and thank you for all your faithfulness all these years. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you all for being here and listening. And that does it for this episode of the Western Friend Podcast. Thank you to those that joined us for the live recording. A big thank you to Julie Harlow and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you haven't explored the archive of episodes, there are plenty of other wonderful, thought-provoking interviews and conversations from Western Friend that you can find wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes are released the first Saturday of every month, so stay tuned. Until next time, peace. Personally, when I pray, it's really about listening. It's not about asking. It's certainly not about telling. Some of it is gratitude, but mostly it's trying to be empty enough to listen, to hear what guidance spirit has for me in that moment.